Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 4 for just a little bit. I'm going to, I want to get there eventually, but I wanted to ask the question because we're going to kind of launch into a, a kind of an odd study, actually. It's more, it's more of a study of people, not, not truly, but it's how, it's how Jesus disciples people in groups and in relationships, and uh, it's incredibly important to me and very uh, informational to me, some things that the Lord has taught me over the last couple of years that I want to begin to share with you. So how can you know that you're truly a Christian? Now, if you ask most people, are you Christian? I think most people would, would say, and again, I don't mean this to be judgmental, but most people would say, yeah, or at least I have an understanding of what a Christian means. And so what does the word Christian actually even mean? Well, it depends on who you ask. To be quite honest, this is one of those slippery definitions that it's hard to kind of pin down. So finding a definition for Christian is easy. Finding a definition that all Christians can agree on is impossible. And it probably has always been that way. So when you look at the New Testament, the word mathetes is translated the word disciple, okay? Disciple is found 264 times in the New Testament. That's, that's a lot of times, all right? When you compare that to the word Christian, Christian is only found three times. And so it's really easy to say, well, I'm a Christian. Well, what does that mean? It's a lot easier to be able to know if a person is a disciple, a whole lot less easy to know if a person is truly a Christian, what I'm trying to say by that is Christian is always a noun. Every time it's used, it's always a noun. So in other words, it's not a verb. It's a person. It's not, it's not you don't Christian something, right? Christian is your identity, your belonging. It's, it's literally who you are. And in every context of that word, it's 100% of this thing, right? So when you say you're a Christian, it's like all in. I mean, it's a completely new identity. Christianity is not something I belong to or something I do. It is the makeup of, of my brand, of my personal self. It's very important to get that. So when you, when you think about 264 times we hear about the disciples, those who are learning, mimicking, imitating, the pupil, the student, that's what the word disciple means. Someone who is walking literally in the dust of the rabbi. Someone who is mimicking his walk and the way he presents himself and the, the stops that he makes. And even the way he would present words, people would study this rabbi and they would mimic him to a T. Because when the rabbi passes, then the disciples of the rabbi are able to continue that ministry exactly the way he did. My fear is that we have turned Christian into the entry point of our faith. And if being Christian like Christ is what the word means, if being like Christ is the entry point, we've turned it into a box that we check. And yet being a disciple is where we learn, we grow, we struggle, we process, we're, we're thinking, we're, we're wrestling with scripture, we're reaching out and we're ministering to people and we're learning to love people unconditionally. We're, 
When Jesus speaks, we speak. And where Jesus is distracted, we get distracted. And we go in the direction of our rabbi. And over a process of time, when people begin to see us, they should look at us and say, that person is like their rabbi. Does this make sense? I'm afraid that we flipped it. And when we say yes to Jesus on the very beginning, we have already arrived at the goal. And we have failed to do any discipling of ourselves, And yet even the goal of a disciple, Jesus says the goal is making disciples, not being disciples. Because he understands our nature is to make a decision and just neutral. But what we must do is understand that we make the decision and we begin a process of looking more and more like Jesus the longer we live. So if we were to ask the world, what is a Christian? They don't know. We haven't shown them. We've shown them chaos. We've shown them confusion. We've shown them division. We've shown them war. We've shown them hatred. We've shown them all sorts of things. I could list them all day. All sorts of things that do not look like Jesus. And yet there's very few of us actually willing to wrestle with becoming like him as the goal. You know, the church at Antioch, blowing up. Great church. They, were, they, had, they had put aside all racism. They had put aside all doctrinal issues. They had put aside all of their economic issues. And they were, I mean, they were a dynamite church. And the community of Antioch, this was the place where they were first called Christians. You know who named them that? The world called them that. And it's really easy for us to use that as a noun, but listen to what they did. Those people live like their rabbi. I wonder if our neighborhood would say that about us. Well, those people act just like Jesus. They must be Christian. But you know, to be a Christian, you've had to be a disciple first. We've put the disciple and levied that for the fanatics. Oh, you're a, you must be one of those disciples. I just think, and again, it may be semantics, but it's beginning to fill me with conviction because we are not painting the picture of Christ to the world around us. In a lot of ways, we're, we're, we're the ones responsible for not showing them Christ at all. You look at the second use of the word Christian is when Paul is preaching to Agrippa. And he looks at Agrippa and he begins to give this compelling apologetic to Agrippa. And you remember what Agrippa says? Almost, Paul, you've persuaded me to be a, like your rabbi. The only time that the word Christian was used by a Christian was Peter in 1 Peter when he talks about those who are suffering as Christians. Those who are suffering like Jesus. When I see disciples suffering, that's where I can see Jesus. They're like Jesus when they suffer. Those are the only three times the word's used. We use it like it's pennies. I just feel like we've watered it down so much that there's no way in the world we can define it. Everybody walks around with their own definition, their own objectives, their own ministry, their own calling. We in the West 
have you made Christianity so unique it can just simply be boiled down in every single person. I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. I don't need to be in that group to be a Christian. I don't need to go to that place to be a Christian. Well, maybe not to be a Christian. But to be like Christ, there was a very specific path that Jesus chose for those who would be like him to walk. His word, his will, his way. So I wonder when we, when we consider the relationships that we have and the uh, areas of life that we are in, I just wonder sometimes if the world, when the world sees us, do they see a, a follower of Jesus, a student of Jesus, or are they seeing Christ himself? Now you say, well, now listen, that's a big, that's a big thing to say, well, they see, I want them to see Jesus in me. We want people to see Jesus in us, amen, right? We want people to see Jesus in us. But I'm still practicing my faith. I'm still learning my faith. Whatever they see in me, they can see. But for me as an individual, I'm going to be a disciple. If the world wants to say that I'm like Jesus, well, that's up to them. But first, they got to know who Jesus is to know what to compare me to. Again, semantics, I'm sure. But Christianity is more, about pr- more than praying a prayer and getting baptized and belonging to a church. The truth is we have to start as a disciple, a learner, and we mature to like Christ. Am I trying to say that we're not Christians? Of course not. Of course we are. If Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you are a Christian. Positionally, yes. But I'm talking about the way our ministry expands from ourselves and the, the unity and the belonging that we get to experience together walking in that uniqueness. Collective uniqueness not individual uniqueness. If you go around the world, you'll see that the West, I'm speaking specifically of America, is much different than much of the rest of the world when it comes to uniqueness. We pride ourselves on independence and we're the only ones like ourselves. The rest of the world doesn't process that way. And so I think there's a whole lot of our Christianity that we have actually uh, redefined much of it ourselves anyway because we're trying to find ourselves in the scripture we're trying to find some help for us in the scripture instead of trying to see what it looks like to be more like Jesus in our everyday life if you're reading this book and you're trying to see you it ain't about you it's about him I told somebody again earlier this week if if the story that you tell of your life has you as the central character you're telling it wrong you're not the purpose of your story Displaying the radiance of Jesus Christ is the central character of your story. He's the one that's at work. Your life is a story about him. Okay, Matthew chapter 28. I know I said, we'll get, we'll get there, okay? Now I feel like I owe you Acts chapter 4. The way I feel right now, we may not get there. No, I'm just kidding. I'm so grateful. Two and a half years. This is like the second time it's rained on a Sunday morning. If it sounds like I'm mad, I'm just trying to beat the rain. And the way I have felt for the last 20 days, I actually might go out and preach in the rain. (laughs) I've prayed for this so hard, I am not going to complain about it, right? Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given. Now, in just the previous verse, it says that they came and they worshiped Jesus, but some, some doubted. 
Now, that word there that's used for doubt is only found two times in Scripture. The other time is when Peter was walking on water and he put his head down and he doubted. It's the same word usage there, right? Jesus, Peter wasn't doubting Jesus. Peter was doubting Peter in that moment. Now, I don't know if we can infer that in this passage or not, but I believe that these men knew that God was about to call them to something powerful. In the book of Zechariah, it actually says that God's going to summon his people to the mountain, and there in the mountain, he will meet with them in their presence, and he will draw all nations to himself there in that mountain. I believe it's talking about far, far from now. But the disciples, I know when Jesus says, hey, come to this mountain, they're thinking to themselves, God's going to draw everybody to this mountain. It's fulfillment of prophecy. And so I think that they're terrified that God's about to use them in ways that they don't feel prepared. So when they come and worship Jesus, some of them doubted. I think they're doubting themselves, doubting their own ability, not doubting Jesus. He's the resurrected Christ standing in front of them. Really kind of hard to doubt them at that moment. So nevertheless, so this is why Jesus, I believe, starts with this empowering message to them. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now, if you're doubting yourself in that moment, I want to hear that guy talk because that's what I'm needing to hear this very moment. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. He does not say be disciples because they have already been one. All right? They are disciples. First, foremost, and because they are disciples, they qualify for disciple making. So this begins a, a, a personal place of relationship with them after the resurrection. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. <clears throat> so pay very close attention to what Jesus actually asks them to do. Number one, he said, go, which is very intentional, right? He's telling them to be very intentional. The original uh, language says, as you are going. It's a present uh, active uh, uh, process here. So in every moment, as you live, as you breathe, as you go, make disciples. Always be looking for opportunities to point people to Jesus Christ, the rabbi. Make disciples of who? of all nations, of all nations. There's no one that's not qualified to receive this discipling and teach his words his way. Again, incredibly important. And so Jesus calls his people to be intentional, to be relational, and to be missional. This is the new identity. This is who we are. This is who Jesus was. If you ever want to be like Jesus, then you need to be relational, you need to be intentional, and you need to be missional, okay? So if Jesus is going, you are going. If Jesus said go, then you are going. He is active in us. So Jesus' command is very clear. It's actually where we get our mission statement as a church, helping people find and follow Jesus. That's what Jesus said right here. It's the broad umbrella under which we, we live, personally, socially, spiritually, relationally. Our responsibility as a church body is to help people as we go, to help people as we go, to find 
so that as they watch our lives, they find Jesus faithful. They can recognize who Jesus is as they see how we interact with them, as we process through life with them, how we deal differently than the world deals. They can experience him. They can learn to trust him as they learn to trust us. So finding and following, that's obeying, that's living righteously, living holy lives, being righteousness of Christ, Jesus himself his word, his will, his way. And that's where we find his presence with us always, helping people find and follow Jesus. So we have to ask ourselves that question often. Anytime that we come into a context, am I helping people find and follow Jesus in the situation that I'm currently in? And listen, we all get into difficult situations. We all get into times where we're like, it, we start thinking about ourselves. We start thinking about our processes and what we're going to do, what we're going to think, how we're going to get out of it, what we're going to say. I'm telling you, there is a better way of processing that. Instead of dealing with your individual circumstances that force you to focus on your uniqueness, if you will say, in this moment, how am I supposed to represent Christ in this moment? It doesn't become about the moment anymore. It becomes about Jesus. And your fear and your anxiety and your worry and your distress can float away because now it has a higher purpose. I'm telling you, but it, it takes muscle memory. It takes a lot of work to begin to process life that way. It can be about a job loss or what is God about to teach me that I can give away to others. It can be about a volatile relationship or it can be about what God is trying to teach me in this particular moment that I can give away to others. There's always room for us to grow and to learn, even in, even in difficulty, and also on the mountaintops. So as a church, as individuals, as homes, as families, helping people find and follow Jesus. Notice how Jesus breaks it down into two arenas here, okay? Two arenas. He says, teaching them, that uses the, the head and the heart, teaching them, put it up here, put it down here, to observe, that means to obey, which is out here and in my daily life, my hands and my habits. So I want you just to hear this quickly. When Jesus says teaching them head, heart, to observe hands and our daily habits, okay? So when we think about what Jesus is asking us to do, it involves every part of us. It involves every part of who we are, every fiber of our being, our head, our heart, our hands, and our, our daily walk as we go. So we think about what, what we do. How do. How do I need to think about this? How do I need to feel about this? What do I need to do about this? But it's all kingdom. Jesus knows that people grow best in relationships. I believe that Jesus created us for that. And Jesus was a master of discipleship. And so based on Jesus's ministry, we find that God develops us differently based upon what relationship that we find ourselves in and specifically five different relationships. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about these a little bit because I, today I kind of wanted to begin kind of a philosophy of why we even do church. Why are we here? You know, you'll, you'll, you'll never be better than your why. And so we have to know why do we even exist? Why do we even gather together and all that sort of, sort of thing? So it seems to me that Jesus was very intentional. And, and I wasn't even going to say this, but 
I just don't think Jesus needs the credibility. But back in the 60s and the 70s, there was a psychologist who discovered this, this concept of the way people congregate and the different things that they need from different size relationships, different size groups. He calls the study proxemics. It's the study of how we relate to people in proximation of distance to them. And you, you know the difference between, you know, the intimacy that you may experience with a spouse versus the person that you're buying milk beside, right? Uh, you know that there's a different relationship, different expectation. And we all know that there's people in your life that talk right here. And, and really what we need for them to do is talk about four feet away. You know, do you know what I mean? So proximity in relationships is very Important. I'm not going to get into that a whole lot, but Jesus' ministry is boiled down into five spaces. And so I'm not going to get into all those today. I'm really just going to kind of try to focus on one. But the, the public space, public space is uh, hundreds of people. We see Jesus ministering there as he's walking the streets and teaching and people are following after him and hearing him speak. And when he's uh, preaching at the Sermon on the Mount and the mountains covered with people or when he's preaching to the 5,000 or when he's preaching to the 4,000. And, and so many times Jesus is orating. He is inspiring people and, and creating motivation for people and momentum in people when in, in this public space. Typically that is centered around much like what we're doing in this very moment. Uh, and, and so people are literally discipled. Jesus discipled people to a certain level in that public space. Secondly is social space. Social space occurs around 70 people or so. This is what we would call affinity groups. People who have a similar thing in common. Uh, public space would be people who have a, a specific place in common. Social space has an affinity, a, a, an issue in common, a cause, a service, a, a mission. And so in that group, it's more about the what are we doing together and relating to each other around a cause. Personal space is the third one. That starts becoming about 12 to 15 people. This is a place of intimacy. It becomes a place of sharing opinions in a safe environment. It's where we begin to really develop a prayer life that's mutual between two people uh, as as one writer said, it's the place where you are now close enough to see people's warts and flaws on their faces, right? It's where you start just being the real you and your wart. I mean, I see your warts, but I love you anyway, right? Uh, not that warts are a, uh, whatever. Uh, so, and then you have transparent space. That's two to four people. And that's where we experience accountability, honesty, trust, vulnerability. That's where you're so close. And some of you will get this where you're so close and you can't see warts anymore. You know, you're so close. It's like everything just blends in together. And I don't even see flaws in this person because the relationship is so, is so dear. And lastly is divine space. And that's my personal time with the Lord. Now, I'm going to just give you that as, as a way of introductory to the ideas, but I need you to grasp a hold of that a little bit and just follow me for the next couple of minutes, okay? So when Jesus ministers, these are the five spaces that he ministers in. He preaches and inspires the hundreds. He sends out on mission the 70 times, you know, and then he, he, he deals intimately with the disciples, the 12, 
and ultimately Peter, James, and John in this vulnerable, vulnerable moments, and then he always had time to spend with the Father in that divine space. In fact, it's that personal space with the Lord that begins to flow out the boundaries for all of the other spaces. Because it's in that personal space, that's where we find identity. That's where we find value. And listen to me very, very closely. We live in a world that really maximizes or over overuses the idea of group life together. But whatever group you're in, whether it's Christian or civic or social or whatever it may be, that's not the place to find your identity. That's not where we find our identity. We find our identity in the presence of God himself. He's the one we listen to about value and belonging. And so that, you, you take what God has said about us and you take it into those spaces and that's how you begin to help people find and follow Jesus. But if you just go into a public space and, and belong, uh, you're probably not going to be very effective for the kingdom because you'll just become like whoever you're with. And uh, boy, it's so much easier to talk like this. I feel so angry. I'm not angry. I'm just loud. So I'm not built for loud, as you probably well know. Now, the important thing is that God establishes these different spaces because there's different things that we can learn in each of those spaces. So if somebody were to stand up in this room right now and say, I'd like to confess sin, I've been, I want to, I'll just fill in the gap. I don't make anybody nervous. But here's something that I've been doing in my life. We would all go, whoa, that's not, no, 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 no. It's not a safe place. Because uh, this isn't the place for that. But there are places for that. Uh, if, if I were to say right now, anybody have a prayer request? We just don't have time for that. And I know it's, it's great, and we want to be able to hear what's going on in each other's life, but this is the public space. We just don't have time for that. We have places that offer those opportunities. This isn't the place that offers that. And so there are certain places, in it, and so uh, I, want you to hear me, I want you to hear my heart, right? You can't practice saying some things. But if all you're getting is Sunday morning, there's four spheres of discipleship that you're not getting that God wants you to get. There's four other areas of life where you're not being discipled by God himself. You know, God ultimately does the discipling. We, we believe that. So God disciples us differently in each space. And the church needs to be able to provide those spaces so that disciples can grow appropriately in those spaces. So today I want to talk about just one of those spaces. I want to talk about the public space, which is where we, we currently are. And so this is where we can focus on belonging and believing, uh, inspiration and uh, momentum, and uh, you know, kind of reminding ourselves of what our mission actually is. So there was a, a group of a massive group, it's not it's not a small sampling of, of churches. And we ask ourselves, why, why does church even exist? Why is it important to even be here? And uh, you know, I'm not going to fully answer that question today. But of church attendees that were surveyed, 89%, okay, 89% of all church attendees, not here, all over the country, they were asked, why does church exist? And they said, the purpose of the church is to take care of my families and my needs, 89%. 11% said the purpose of the church is to win the world for Christ. 11%. So they asked the pastors of these churches the same question. 90% of pastors said that the purpose of the church is to win the world, to win the, the lost uh, of the world to, to Christ. 10% said to take care of the people that were there when they were hired. 
I mean, again, I don't really care, you know, one way or the other. I mean, it's important, but that's not the point. The point is, I think we're really confused about why we're here. And I think if we're confused about why we're here, and if we all have different reasons for why we're here, it's no wonder why the world is so confused about who the church is and what Christians are and do and why they don't need to belong. Even the church doesn't understand why she exists, the why. Nothing is more important than our why. It's where we get our inspiration. It's where we get our motivation. It's where we get our activation. It's where we get our purpose. So the starting point for every church is the question, why do we do this? Do we just do it because we've been doing it for 2,000 years? It's what Christians do? Well, we live under the umbrella, again, I've said, helping people find and follow Jesus. And so Jesus gives us the context to be discipled from each of those areas of life. And until we know why we are here and and how we are to accomplish the why, then we can never be united in mission or find the next path for discipleship. Acts chapter 4. And before you get to, boy, he never uses scripture uh, today. Uh, I have. I just may have not be very clear just because I told you to turn here first I don't know why I do that I, I want to have it up here uh, so I, I give the guys the verse that I'm really going to be using not ever thinking really that by the time I get to the verse I'm going to use I've used lots of verses so I'm sorry if there's any confusion about that but the early church knew why they existed look at this in Acts chapter 4 verse 32 and 33 and they were unified around the purpose that they already knew they existed for look at verse 32 now the multitude of those who believed were of what one heart and soul one heart and soul now remember when we talk about who we are as people we are flesh we are Soul, we are spirit, and the heart resides in the soul. But this is the emotional part of who we are, the processing part, the personality part, the, you know, the, the, the will, the, uh, the goals, the drive, the desires. This is where all of that takes place. And so very specifically, Acts chapter 4, verse 32 says they were united in heart and soul. So the part of them that wrestles with spirit and flesh is united together. And I'm going to tell you, they were already united in spirit. That's the part of we are Christians if we claim Christ as our Savior. We are one in spirit. Where we find unity isn't in our spirit. Where we want, I mean, that already exists. Where we need to find unity is in the places we process life, where we process the spirit out. Because I'm telling you that once we are one in heart and spirit, we will become one with flesh, what we do, what our objectives are, how we're going to accomplish our oneness here that flows out of our oneness spiritually. Today, that kind of makes sense. Just want to make sure it's very specific here of where they are united. They didn't all do the same thing. They may not have all believed the same thing, but they all were united around the common purpose of glorifying Christ and making his name known. So they had different tasks, but they all had the same calling to fulfill the great commission in their generation. All right. And in verse 33, with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. 
So these, these early Christians did more to spread Christianity in their generation than any other generation that followed them. And so I believe that the, the secret sauce for that first church was unity at the corporate level, the, the corporate body of Christ, the big C church. They had a common goal to glorify God in everything that we do. This was the answer to every question. And all the believers shared in this unity, not just the apostles, not just the leaders, not just the ones who received some of the offering. All the believers were united together, unified together. There was a fundamental solidarity of love and purpose. To be, to be one in heart and soul was to be united in every fiber of their being. To be others-centric. You know, until we can start thinking about what others need and praying for others and caring for others and considering others and being patient with others and forgiving others and esteeming others, all of the one another's in Scripture, until we can start practicing that among the body, we're going to be terrible at that with strangers. How dare we think that God's going to give us the practice field in here to model his kingdom and to think that the world's going to have a clear picture of that when we neglect it. This is why the writer of Hebrews says that we should, that we should attend. Don't neglect the assembling of yourselves together as, the, as some are. But we should actually even come together even more often as we see you know, the day of Christ appearing. What could be more important than practicing our faith in here with one another? as a testimony to the world around us of what, of what unconditional love and care looks like. That's what they were doing. They had unity at the corporate level. It's not an accident that Jesus taught them to love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the great commandment, and they did that, and they were united together in that. When your mind and your soul are lined up, then... Unity is a byproduct of it. If you focus on unity, I'm telling you, I've, I've been there before. If we only focus on what we have in common, then all we're looking for is division. We're looking for disagreement. But if all we look for is the glory of God, we don't have to, we don't have to throw our opinions in necessarily. I mean, we, we all want to be on track and we want to be able to be taught by each other and learn from each other. Of course, see different perspectives. That's where, that's where not surrounding yourself with the exact same kind of thinking, that's where it's beneficial. But the goal of the matter is we want to see Jesus Christ magnified in our generation. But unity is a byproduct of being lined up with his word, his will, his way. And sometimes we work and I shouldn't say we, the, the church, work really hard to line up behind affinity groups, felt need groups, politics, you know, specific doctrines, hobbies. And we come to these things where we're like, well, you know, I really like doing that. I like doing this. These are my people over here. Or I really don't believe that the way you do. So I'm going to go over here. I really don't think that, you know, I, you know, Christians can't be Democrats and Democrats can't be Republicans. And I'm just, you know, that's just not for me. And this, and we start dividing ourselves up when we, when we keep trying to find those things that we have only in common, we're really going to, all it does is create chaos and division. But if we can line up behind the rabbi, and we can imitate the rabbi, then all of a sudden, those other things take care of themselves. They were for each other and their community. I don't have time to, to go back to Acts chapter 2 and to really show, showcase that a lot, but they shared their lives. They shared their possessions with one another. 
They, they, they went behind, beyond, way beyond kind words and pats on the back. They knew what was going on in each other's lives because they were dependent upon each other. They cared for each other. They gave priority to meeting the physical and practical needs that were very evident. Remember in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, it says, Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Praising God and having favor with all the people. Those all the people were people out there. Because they were praising God, and praising God lines them up behind God, and the world was able to be the beneficiary of that. The thing that I like best about the church, at least in the first century, and maybe today, and, and again, I don't, wanna, I, don't wanna, I don't want us looking at each other this way, but one of the things that I love about churches like ours is I look around the room and I see various kinds of backgrounds and testimonies. I see all kinds of different types of people and, and stories that make up their life. And to me, it is absolutely beautiful. I can only imagine what it looks like to the Lord. But I think that's what the church is. That's what the early church was. It was, it was leaders, and it, were, it was homeless, worshiping God together, sharing with each other. It was the educated and the uneducated, sharing with each other as mutuals instead of, instead of creating division in the street because they were called together behind a very single purpose. In verse 33, it says, They experienced the power of God with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony. Do you know why? Because they were united in heart and soul. They weren't trying to convince anybody of their own agenda. There was able to be great power because there was great confidence that we're all one. Oh, how wonderful to pastor a church that's unified behind that one common goal of helping people find and follow Jesus, of making disciples as we go, teaching them to deserve all things that Jesus has commanded us to do knowing that he is with us always, even to the very end, no matter what you go through. And they experienced that power, and that preaching went out, not just from the apostles, but it went out to the people and from the people out to the masses. You know, so much so that scholars estimate that the church, uh, the first century church grew from about 70 to about 100,000 people in the first 25 years. And yes, as you might imagine, I did the math. That's 5,700, over 5,700% growth in 25 years. They got it. And I believe they got it. And the proof that they got it was that they were united together in heart and soul. They were for each other. They're for each other. And they're for each other created an environment where they could be for those outside, those people. And when those people became these people, the Lord added to the church daily those that were being saved. And the power was also mightily, I mean, you think about it. So, so here we are, we're, you know, we're 70, 150, however many Christians there were at this time. And then all of a sudden, this great persecution followed Pentecost. And you have James killed almost immediately. This great persecution broke out and, and, and the world said, no, 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 we're, you're, you're, not, we're, you're not going anywhere. Satan, satanic influence, no, you're not going anywhere. But you know what the church did? It blew up because it gave them a greater cause. They were so for each other. What impacted one family impacted every family and they had each other. Well, how great would that be today? Then there was, you know, how, how quick did, uh, well, there's so many jokes here that I want to tell. We're 2,000 years away. I don't think it's too soon. But Ananias and Sapphira, you got moral corruption hitting the church pretty quick. Now, I, I do want to say something about if somebody were to lie about their tithe and get dragged out dead, it probably increased tithing awareness. 
so I do, I do understand that, you know, there is some value to that. But it did. It lined them up, you know. It lined them up, even dealing with moral corruption. They didn't run away from the church fearing that. No, nope, they got more serious about it and went to the next level. And then you get this, this uh, by the time you get just a few chapters into the, the, the book of Acts, you have this argument over the Hellenistic, you know, the Greek widows, and we're not getting served right, and the, and the Jews, and, uh, you know, they, they have to appoint deacons to, to handle their, uh, the, the apostles get quite distracted by all that and say, we don't have time to get distracted by this. We're going to appoint godly men full of the Holy Spirit to, to handle this. I mean, how great to be able to, that just that first, right out of the gate, first few weeks into the church, it's like we already got men full of the Holy Spirit we can trust so we can pay attention to what really matters on target. God's will, God's word, God's way. But in each case, the church withstood the attack, stayed true to its purpose. Even by Paul's day, you know, uh, Alexander and Hymenaeus, Hymenaeus has abandoned me. And this one has shipwrecked their faith. And just these brothers just falling away, falling away. But they stayed true. They stayed true to what they knew God had called them to do. Nothing got in their way. And so I would say to us today, rallying around anything other than Jesus is always going to result in division. If we try to rally around anything other than Jesus, we will eventually run into division. That's the thing that our country is dealing with today. We try to rally around something, get everybody stirred up about something, and you're always going to find somebody that says, that's not the way I see it. And so we start I mean, I don't think there's ever been a greater division. Maybe, not in my lifetime for sure, but where whatever side you're on, you're on a po- there's a polar opposite side that hates your guts for thinking that. And I would, I would imagine that in this room, if we were to start talking about politics, we'd have to split sides. If we started talking about the value of education, we'd split sides. If we started talking about race, we might split sides. Not because we disagree about racism, but because we disagree about how to say it. We disagree about how we feel about different things. God help us. These are not our rally points. Our rally points must be the glory of Jesus Christ. And he will iron all of those things out for us. You don't have to agree to love. You don't have to agree to be kind. Think about Jesus praying in John chapter 17. I'm just going to read it, verse 20. I pray not only for these, the disciples, but also those who believe in me through their message. That's us. May they be one as you, Father, and I. I am one in you. May they also be one in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. You see that? That oneness? Jesus says, I want that those who will follow these to be one with us so that the world will know that the Father has sent me. I and them, you and me, may they be completely one so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Knowing the end was near, knowing that that night Jesus would be arrested. Do you know what he does? He doesn't pray for peace. He doesn't pray for, you know, um, some kind of... uh, I'm trying to think of what anesthesia. Uh, He doesn't pray that it won't hurt. He prays for unity for those who will come later. He's sowing seeds in prayer for us. Not for their success, not for their safety, not for their happiness, for their ability to be one and to stay one. 
this is uh, a lot that I that I kind of want want to say, but. Uh, this is why our gatherings are so important. So I want to just be a little bit pastoral for just a minute, okay? Um, this, is, this is the public space. But within the public space, we need to create room for people that are not like us, people that are not here every week. We need to, be, we need to move from just being friendly to being friends, to being relational. Many of us sit in the same spot week after week after week, and you may not even know the people that are sitting around you. Listen, this is the place to practice some of that social awkwardness. I'm not asking you to be weirded out. And if, you know, I just know that there's, there's, there is growth in this room right now that we're not taking advantage of. There are relationships here right now that we're not taking advantage of. And I, and I want you to, I want you, I can't, you can't be discipled in a large group alone. If all you're getting is the discipleship that you get in this room, you're walking with a limp. I'll just tell you, you're walking with a limp. You're being malformed as a disciple. You might be inspired week after week, but you're not on mission for the kingdom. And you're not finding accountability with brothers and sisters and learning to trust and learning to be vulnerable. And you're not learning how to share the real priorities of your heart with people and learning to trust people. And probably because we're not learning our identity or hiding behind our own, I don't want to say phobias, hiding behind our own minds, fears, rather than believing who we are in Christ. So what I would encourage you to do is, from week to week, see people you've never met before. They may or may not be new. Just be Christ to them in the moment. Offer to take them to lunch after church. Get here a little early so that you can have an opportunity to shake the hand of somebody that you've never seen before. I'll tell you this, there are, there are people that, and I, I don't want to get too specific, but there are people that I've, I try to meet everybody new, and if, I, if I've not met you yet, I'd love to meet you. I'm going to wait right down here so we can if you'd like. <clears throat> but I try to meet new, new folks, and not because it's part of the job, but because I want to know, I want to know, I want to, I want to, I want to relate I want you to, I want to connect you to who we are as a church. And so I, I say that to say that there are people, I'm just, again, I'm just going to cut the edge off of this a little bit. If people come here, I want, if you're here every week, I want you to hear me. If people come here for the first time, I promise you, regardless of the smile on their face, there's a reason why they're here. There's something that they're looking for. And it ain't me. It's you. They're, they're not looking for a preacher. They're looking for people. They're looking for relationships. And I'll tell you, if they come here, they're broken. How do I know? Because we're all broken. But if we keep hiding behind our smiles, not relating to each other, not being on mission together, what are we doing? Why do we exist? I knew, I told, I told my wife when COVID kicked in and we had to stop meeting for a few weeks, I said, boy, for a little while, everything about church is going to be content. Content, 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 content. People won't study on their own. People don't know how to open their Bibles. People need to be, and, and there, were some, there were some serious deficiencies. And I'm not speaking just of our church. I'm talking about of the church, right? 
There's going to be, it's going to be so highly content and over the course of whatever time it's going to be, people will learn new normals and new habits. And I'm telling you, churches are really struggling because people have decided that they want content over relationships. And we have really reduced Christianity down to content. Christianity is not about content. Christianity is about relationships. It's about being discipled by one another, not being informed or motivated by a pastor. Christianity is about relationships. It's about loving each other and caring about each other and learning to live life along each other and encouraging each other to help people find and follow Jesus. And by the way, as you look through Scripture, you will never find a passage of Scripture that tells us to produce unity. Every, every passage on unity is about keeping unity, maintaining unity, not producing it. Unity is there, but we have to work at it. We have to stir Christ up in each other. We have to have, remember and share our victories with each other. And then in smaller groups, we have to share our defeats and our failures. And in each one of these arenas, we learn more and more about how God would expand our territory. But if, if you're only getting one of those groups or maybe two of those groups, or this has been my conviction, and then I'm going to be done, okay? My conviction is, is that there are certain spaces that we have not created. And we've tried to force some things as a, as a disciple-making formation into one space, and that space wasn't created to produce it. And so I feel like there's, it's, it's created some division and some chaos. And we wonder why aren't things working the way they should because we didn't, I didn't understand this. And, uh, and so over the next few weeks, we're going to talk a little more. Maybe it'll become a little more clear about what, what a disciple should look like and, what, and as a church, what we pledge to provide so that as a family, as an individuals, you can know that you're following God, his will, his word, his way. And we're looking more and more, like, more and more like Jesus as we take each step in the dust of our rabbi. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And I just pray, I know we've been all over the place. And I just, I just ask, Lord, that you would take your word and apply it to our hearts and help us to know that there's more than just this. Help us to recognize that we need each other. And how quickly you turned even the youngest of Christians, the newest of Christians, into each other. Um, I love, I love that you know, there's very, very few qualifications. Very few qualifications for being used in the body of Christ to develop uh, each other. So Lord, as we endeavor to continue to work what we believe, what I believe you're calling us to as a church, I pray that you would give us grace and that great grace would be upon us all as we endeavor to be united together. That doesn't mean always in agreement, but it does mean that the reason that we exist is the same, to produce and see the glory of Christ manifested throughout the River Valley and beyond. Lord, may we be a church that is on mission as we serve each other. 
pray for the opportunities that we have even upcoming. It sounds like this sermon was a great commercial for the fall. And Lord, as we're inviting every family in this neighborhood to this place, um, it ain't about a movie and it's not about popcorn, but if that's the tool that you would use, Lord, I pray that you'd use your people to manifest your glory to them. May they see you in us. May we know who we are because we've spent time with you so we don't talk ourselves out of participating because we've got nothing to offer. Lord, help us to hear from you about who we are and feel drawn and called to minister to people outside of our, our sphere. I pray that you would help us to understand the importance of being honest with one another, being able to pray for one another, to be able to share our burdens with one another. You just help us to stop just attending church. Lord, I know each week, you know, there are people that even watch online. I pray, Lord, that they would they would come, be here. There's no better, there's no better place than being with your people. It's time for us to take it seriously again and to put away all of our excuses and our issues and to put away just start start loving each other, being close to each other, being a family together as you have called us. We have one Father. We are brothers and sisters. We all have the, the same spiritual birth process. We are all one here in this room. So we thank you for praying for us and mediating for us and advocating for us. And just, uh, just pray, Lord, that your glory would manifest from this place as we go. I pray that we'd be able to get a real sense of knowing that we're not alone because we've been in this public space. We've been filled up by these public people as we come together divided and we're diverse in all sorts of different backgrounds and we all live in different neighborhoods and they even live in different counties. And yet, Lord, we're here because your glory has made a difference in our life. And we feel called for that glory to make a difference through us. And so as you speak to us and through us, Lord, may it, may it manifest out of our hands. And may we grab brothers and sisters beside us and link arms and shoulder to shoulder and begin to do battle with spiritual forces that threaten to overtake us. This is your land. This is your place. And everything we've talked about today belongs to you. So I pray that you would make much of your fame through our lips as we say yes. pray that we wouldn't just be satisfied by doing Christian things. I pray that we'd be like Christ. If anyone claims to be in him, he must live as he lived. Thank you for modeling for us. Thank you for being the perfect example to show us that we need each other to be right with you to look like you I'm going to ask you just to stay where you are heads bowed and eyes closed but I do want to ask today if you know if there's something going on in your life some distraction in your life that you know is keeping you from one another you, you know you're called to one another you know that but something just keeps getting in the way. Maybe, maybe some pain from the past or some betrayal from a long time ago and just trusting people is really hard. 
Being vulnerable is really hard. And, and maybe you would like to know that somebody is helping pray for you to be able to forgive or to let go or to reconcile. Would you just slip your hand up? I'd love to, to be able to pray for you. I'm not going to embarrass you or call your name. I see that hand. Anybody else? Be honest enough to say, I, I know what it is that's holding me back, but I just can't hardly let it go. Or maybe, maybe you're here today and, and you're just struggling with priorities. Would you just slip your hand up and say, Pastor Blaine, I know that what you're talking about is what I'm supposed to be doing, but loving people and caring for people and being available to serve together and give myself away, but I just struggle being filled up. I see that hand and other hands all over the room. I just, I just find myself just struggling being filled up. I just can't hardly say full. I'm going to give you just a moment to pray and then I'm going to close with some prayer, okay? I would say if the Lord has already revealed some things to you, I would encourage you this week to act on those. Don't let there be anything that keeps you away from following the Lord. Don't let there be anything that keeps you in the way, keeps you limited from people. They are the thing that God's going to use to disciple you. Where, where you least plug in is where you'll find your greatest weakness. Father, thank you for your word today. We just pray that you would be blessed as we say yes. Thank you for those that are here, maybe even for the first time. I just I pray your favor to be upon them too. and just ask you to help us, Lord, as a church, just to continue to be a family devoted to you and to your, your word and uh, to your spirit, to each other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.